Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Robert Baharian and this is Masters in Investing. They say life never stops teaching and we never stop learning. This show is a constant dialogue with investors about the economy, about markets, business and about investing to provide you with insight, learnings and a straight up point of view so that you can make better decisions with your money. Robert Baharian is the founder and CEO of Baharian Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Robert and the show's guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Baharian Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, its general in nature, and does not take into account your specific circumstances and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial advice or decisions. Clients of Baharian Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this show. My guest today is Chris Weldon of Magellan Financial Group. Chris is a portfolio manager for the Magellan High Conviction Strategy, overseeing almost $1.8 billion of investor money and an assistant portfolio manager on the Global Equity Strategies. Chris joined Magellan in 2007, moved to their New York office in 2015, a short stint with Davis Advisors and back to Australia in 2018. Chris is a CFA charter holder and holds a Bachelor of Commerce and a Bachelor of Business Management from the University of Queensland. And he's a member of Magellan's Investment Committee, overseeing $77 billion of investor money in their global strategy. Today, we talked about the attributes of successful investors. We talked about skill versus luck. We talked about the future of work post-COVID, the global opportunity set as it relates to investing, And we spent some time trying to understand Tencent, the ultimate outsider. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Chris, welcome, man. Good to see you again. Thanks, Rob. Thank you for having us. So let's get right into it. You're you're up in Coogee. The uh, the Coogee office. The Coogee office. You're managing $1.7, $1.8 billion of client money that you personally oversee. Co-managing, I'll just sort of clarify that Hamish Douglas uh, is very much involved in this strategy as well. In fact, he's the lead sort of decision maker, but I, uh, I help him out a little. And uh, the right man to have by your side. Yeah. You walk into the office, Chris, what do you actually do when you're over- or co-overseeing that much money and people entrust you with their life savings, superannuation, retirees are relying on you to make good decisions on their behalf? What do you actually do when you get to the office? Well, we spend a lot of time trying to, you know, find investments that at the end of the day will contribute to the, the outcomes we're trying to deliver for clients. Uh, and so what does that mean in a practical sense? Frankly, it's a lot of time reading. It's a lot of time speaking to other members of the investment team. The reading will involve annual reports, company filings. Um, there's a pretty steady news flow uh, with respect to a lot of the companies that we have. They're big, global, newsworthy businesses. Um, so keeping on top of those businesses, their competitors, their customers, their suppliers, you know, spending some time thinking about valuations for those businesses. But also, it's not just the things that we own, it's all the things within our investable universe that we could also own at the right price and subject to relative opportunities. So I'd say, you know, it's just a lot of time trying to deeply understand the fundamental performance and the, the future prospects for these businesses that we own and that we look at at Magellan. 
when you talk about investing and you're, you're, you're looking at all these companies, what is your grounding philosophy when it comes to uh, investment decision making and how you then think about the investment process? Can you talk us through your, no, no doubt you'd have some values that are grounded around the rules that you would work within. Can you give sure. us some insight and walk us through that, please? Yeah, so the philosophy is a good good place to start because it really anchors everything uh, that follows. So the philosophy at Magellan, what we're trying to deliver across our different portfolios, our different strategies, you know, the common philosophy I would say is a focus on risk-adjusted, absolute returns over the long term. I think each of those words matters in that sentence. So risk-adjusted everything that we do at Magellan, you know, sort of a risk first focus. We don't want to lose our clients capital. So there's a very strong focus on capital preservation, downside protection, all those sort of things. So risk adjusted returns, not just returns, but risk adjusted returns is very important. The second thing I mentioned was absolute returns. So we are focused on generating, growing, compounding our clients wealth over time. Uh, We're not focused on trying to beat a market benchmark. You know, it's not the case that in a world where the market was down 20% and if you're a relative manager and you're only down 17%, we pop the champagne because that's a good outcome. We don't consider that a good outcome. You know, we're not magicians. We can't promise you will be up 20% in a market that's down 20%. But we're thinking about absolute returns and growing people's wealth in an absolute sense over time, not a relative sense. So absolute returns is very important because it influences how we think about the sort of businesses, the position sizing, the portfolio construction, the objectives we have is very different looking through an absolute lens compared to a relative lens. And then finally, that long-term point that I made, you know, we are genuinely thinking about the prospects for our portfolio companies and for other businesses in our investable universe over three, five, 10 year periods, if not longer. And with a very long-term mindset, just the way you think about business, the way you think about investing, financial markets, the news flow, it changes because not that much matters at the end of the day. If, if what you're focused on is where a business is going to be five years from now, there's probably three, four, five things that really matter. And all the news flow and the commentary and where prices are and what oil's doing and what gold's doing, what Trump's tweeting, all these sort of things is just kind of noise in the background. Some of it can matter from time to time. You know, we do pay attention to some of the economic developments, but with a very long-term focus, a lot of that just is noise. Um, And what you really want to focus on is the company fundamentals and how they are likely to progress over time. So I'd say, you know, that's that's the philosophy, risk-adjusted, absolute returns over the long-term. And the process for us at Magellan has always included three different pillars. The first is around really trying to identify the world's best businesses. And there's a lot that goes into that, as you can imagine. You know, we've got roughly 30 people on our investment team at Magellan. They are exceptional analysts, every single one of them. They are super bright, um, incredibly hardworking, and they are all looking over the world, all over the world for the world's best businesses. 30 person team for the high conviction strategy, you know, we run an eight to 12 stock portfolio or for our broader global fund, tends to run around 25 positions. So the point of that is you have a very large and well-resourced investment team focusing on very concentrated portfolios. And we describe that as a sort of a, a, an inch wide, mile deep research process. 
where we're sort of filtering the thousands and thousands of listed companies all over the world, just trying to find the very best ones. And then we do an enormous amount of work getting to know those select companies incredibly well. So that's really the first part of the process of deep, fundamental, bottom-up research on the world's best businesses. And the second part of the process is marrying that bottoms-up work with a sort of top-down understanding of the risks and any opportunities associated with the macro environment. So more recently, of course, that will include things like COVID. Um, it'll also include things like what central banks and uh, governments are doing around the world to support economies, um, taking a view on where interest rates are likely to settle uh, and reside into the future. All those sort of things, important things associated with the economic environment is a very important part of the process as well. And then the third and final pillar in the process is all around portfolio construction. And again, trying to design, create, optimise portfolios that will achieve the risk-adjusted return objectives we have for each strategy. They are slightly different between the global funds objectives and the high conviction funds objectives. And so therefore we construct the portfolios a little differently. There are risk controls, there's different degrees of concentration, all those sort of things. But that's a very important part of the process as well is sensible risk-considered portfolio construction that's, uh, that's trying to achieve the objectives of each strategy. There's a couple of things that you've just brought up there. I, I want to get into what you think attributes to successful investing. Before we do that, though, you've just gone through what I think is quite a well-thought-through, disciplined process when it comes to investing. How do you manage your investors, who are the folk that are giving you the money, who may not be as disciplined as you are and the processes that you have because you're trying to manage money but at the same time there's a bunch of people here that could just go off at any minute when things go really poor yeah. uh, and the converse is true when things go really well you know investors are plowing into the market how do you how do you manage that to make sure that what happens over here with something that's sort of out of your control doesn't then have a domino effect on your portfolio and the, and the money that you're managing yeah, it's a very profound question, and I would argue it's a very underappreciated component of successful, long-term successful fund management businesses is finding the right clients that align and sort of self-select behind the strategy and the objectives of that strategy. And I think the way we try and... You, you can never control exactly how the clients are going to behave. And at the end of the day, human nature has so much role to play in investment markets and financial markets. But all we can do is be very clear and very transparent around how we are managing portfolios, what our objectives are, periods in the cycle where you should expect us to perhaps perform better than markets or perhaps even underperform markets because that's the way we manage money. Just being very transparent and very clear so that effectively clients can self-select whether this is a investment vehicle that they want to participate in. Because, you know, as you know better than even me, Rob, there are so many different investment products out there. And so investors should, should search for and align uh, with those products that suit their own temperament, their own objectives. Um, and that's what we try and do, which is very, be very clear, very transparent around our objectives, how we manage money, and whether that is suited to each individual's behaviour. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think it is super difficult, you know, especially in our line of work, trying to keep investors on the right track. 
Um, and especially if you don't have someone giving you that guidance and you're, if you're like a DIY investor, you know, you, you could be going left to right, pillar to post, depending on what well, the market. Doing things like this, right? It's, it's just trying to make ourselves available as frequently uh, as is appropriate to answer clients' questions, to make sure they understand sort of who's managing the money, um, the personality, as well as the process behind the scenes, and just try and be as, as transparent as we can. We wouldn't want to claim that we're for everyone. There are certain investing styles and certain investors that, that frankly won't be suited to investing with Magellan, and that's fine. We want to be very clear around how we think about investing, like our description just previously, on the philosophy, on the process. And if that's something that attracts a certain clientele, that's great. But there's no problems at all if people are attracted to something else. Warren Buffett summarised the difference between investing and speculation, uh, something like this. Investing is an activity of forecasting the yield on assets over the life of the asset. Speculation is the activity of forecasting the psychology of the market. Even though investing appears to be quite easy, th there aren't that many people that can do it really well, that can do it uh, consistently, and that their ability to, to generate good returns is persistent. Can you talk us through what you think are the attributes of successful investing? We talked before we, we, we went live about your time in New York on the ground with Davis investors and, you know, the Warren Buffett circles and, and so forth. I'm sure that and, and your time at, at Magellan has helped you shape your thinking around that. What's, what's Chris Weldon's point of view of, of the attributes of a successful investor? It's a, it's a great question again, Rob, because there are so many, there are so many different successful investing styles and there are so many different in, uh, successful investors. So I think you kind of really need to strip it back to kind of first principles because there are very successful equity managers, very successful property investors, very successful fixed income investors, investors that invest globally uh, or domestically, small cap, large cap. So, you know, that doesn't seem to differentiate whether you are a good investor or not. I think it's something deeper uh, than that. I think if you look across the board at, at a number of the su successful investors, is that they all have a very deep self-awareness, a very strong understanding of where their edge is. Again, back to Buffett, you know, he describes this as, as his circle of competence. He knows businesses and he knows industries that are within his circle of competence where he feels like he can invest his money and his shareholders' money and likely generate a good return. What's equally impressive about Buffett over decades is he's been incredibly disciplined around not straying outside that circle of confidence. And I think investing is this, this wonderful, and it's a fascinating industry because I, I don't know if you've read uh, Morgan Housel's recent book, The Psychology of Money, but he, talked, he, he sort of opens the book talking about only in investing could something like this happen, where he, he, he contrasts, I think, a janitor who, who spent less than he earned and over periods of many years and many decades, simply dollar cost averaged into the market, did something very simple like that, but at the end of his life had a profound amount of wealth. And you contrast that story with very successful hedge fund titan that has all the contacts and networks in the world, knows everything about finance, can model a company, and at the end of his career can end up broke. Only in investing can that happen. You know, you contrast that role with God forbid, you know, you or I have a heart attack and we get rushed to the hospital. 
the outcome for us, whether we have a trained, experienced surgeon or someone that just pulled off the street operating on us, our outcome there is going to be very different. But again, in, in the investment world, you can have a janitor, again, who understands his or her limitations and is very disciplined over a long period of time, can outperform someone with all the resources and all the networks in the world. And I just, you know, I think, again, it just speaks to that sort of first principle understanding that you need to sort of know the boundaries of your own competence um, and behave accordingly in a very disciplined way over very long periods of time and not be tempted to do something where the odds are against you. You talk about Morgan Housel and, and the psychology of investing. I want to get to something in a sec, but you, you said Warren Buffett talks about his circle of competence. What's outside Chris Weldon's circle of competence? Most things. Honestly, no, that's, that's not some sort of false, um, false claim it's, uh, or false humility. It's, there are, you know, many businesses I've become more familiar with over time. But, you know, I spoke about the fact that of the thousands of listed securities around the world, even at Magellan, um, we cover a couple of hundred of those businesses. So a couple of hundred businesses compared to the thousands of listed businesses around the world, you know, it's kind of a, a drop in the ocean. Um, so my circle of competence is very, very narrow. There's all sorts of businesses, all sorts of industries, all sorts of geographies that I know very little about. Hopefully over time with discipline and hard work, that circle will expand a little, but it's still very narrow today. And the important thing back to that earlier story is just knowing those sorts of businesses and investment opportunities that are within that circle, being very clear around that and knowing those things that are closer to the boundary or even beyond the boundary. I think self-awareness is, is completely underrated and, and, and totally underappreciated when it, when it comes to investing. Let's talk about skill versus luck. Uh, Morgan Housel in his book also talks about Bill Gates. And I don't think anybody denies that Bill Gates is a very skillful, very successful business person, uh, investor, entrepreneur, etc. No one, no one denies that that would come down to, to skill. But the path to skill there may be potentially an element of luck. Bill Gates went to, I think, one of the very few private schools, Lakeside School, which was only one of very, very few schools at the time that actually had a computer laboratory, right? So, you know, if he didn't go to that school and he didn't have the exposure to, to computers, would Bill Gates be on the same path that he's, he's gone on today? No, no one knows. And we'll, I don't think we'll ever know, right? How do you think about skill versus luck when it comes to investing? Well, I think, I think Gates even went further and said, if it wasn't for Lakeside, there'd be no Microsoft. So of course, you know, he can't prove the counterfactual, but at least in his mind, he suggests that had he not gone to that particular school, all of his future success and wealth and everything that he's been able to do with charity, a lot of it was because he was born in the right place at the right time and got access to those facilities that you mentioned. I'd say the way we think about um, skill and luck is they kind of exist on a continuum. You know, there's a range and there's a lot of activities that skew one way or skew the other. I think Michael Mobison's got a really interesting lens through which to think about skill and luck. He often asks in this activity, can you fail on purpose? And that's a nice way of teasing out how much skill is involved and how much luck is involved. And another interesting example, you know, if we were to go, you know, head to the casino and, and sort of go and jump on the pokies and try and fail on purpose, it's impossible. 
you know, we can't fail on purpose playing the pokies. We press a button and whatever shows up is completely out, out of our control. That is complete luck or complete chance. At the other end of the continuum, you know, there are certain, you know, pick a game like chess, for example, there is so much work and diligence and effort and control in that sort of environment. All the pieces are very public, so you can see how you're playing, how your opponent's playing. Um, there is much more skill involved in that sort of activity, though, of course, there's luck as well. Your opponent could make a, a sort of unexpected mistake, but that sort of activity would skew much more towards uh, skill versus luck. And then investing is probably somewhere in between uh, because at the end of the day, what we're dealing with is an unknowable and incredibly complex future that is going to have both good luck and bad luck. And so investors should, should behave accordingly to that. You know, we sort of, I think investors are frequently surprised by surprises, yet probably the, the lesson from there is that the world is surprising. These seemingly surprising events happen quite frequently, whether it's a pandemic an economic downturn, a geopolitical event, foreign conflicts, these sort of things happen uh, frequently enough that you should expect them. You can never time them perfectly, but you should expect them. And therefore your portfolio should be designed to withstand those sort of shocks because they will happen. Um, so it, investing, I think, very much includes luck. You know, we could just after this call today, you or I or one of the participants could go and buy a a stock on the ASX and later this afternoon or, or first thing on Monday, someone could take out that business at a very, very high premium. I would argue that's, that's you know, you got lucky to the extent that you maybe you doubled your money in a 24 hour period. That's a great outcome, but I'm not sure how much skill necessarily would have gone into that. That, that might've been luck um, as much as skill. And then unlucky things happen all the time as well. You know, if you studied Berkshire Hathaway 50 years ago, and you'd sort of come across this genius in Omaha, Warren Buffett, and you'd understood everything about the business that existed, and you could kind of foresee the compounding journey that Buffett would take Berkshire Hathaway on. As a skilled investor, you would have said that's a very, very safe bet. And frankly, over time, that's worked out incredibly well, as we know, but it could have also been the case that you could have done all that work, made that investment, and the day after you made it, Buffett tragically went under a bus or something like that. Like an unlucky event could have happened to you and that investment despite all of the hard work and completely erase that compounding journey that you would, you would have otherwise missed out on. So, you know, good luck and bad luck are, are sort of happening around us all the time. And we have to cater for that in our portfolio, in our process. That's one of the reasons why we skew very deliberately towards high quality businesses that can withstand shocks and can withstand bad luck. It's why we're very insistent on having a, a sort of wide margin of safety. We wanna buy $100 businesses for $50 effectively, because when things go wrong, we've got that protection in there for clients. Um, and there's so many other things we do within portfolio construction as well, just to try and, we, we can't avoid every risk and every shock, but we're trying to think about these things and even the un unidentifiable risks and, and bad luck events. We want to make sure there's plenty of protection and buffer in the portfolio to be able to absorb them and still hopefully deliver the outcomes we want to deliver. You talk quite a bit about portfolio construction, mitigating risk, etc. I feel like I'm overusing Warren Buffett quotes in this particular conversation, so I'm going to apologize in advance. But he also talks about diversification 
and that wide diversification is only required when you actually don't know what you're doing. And you're managing a portfolio of literally a handful of stocks, like 12 stocks, right? How do you manage all of the things that you've just talked about, which is unforeseen risks, diversification, et cetera, with such a, a narrow mandate when it, as it relates to the portfolio? It's, it's, I, I, it ties together so many of the different parts of the conversation we've had already. Diversification, a very broadly diversified, cheap index fund or passive fund is an absolutely perfect and appropriate vehicle for, for certain investors. You come back to that sort of janitor uh, example I mentioned earlier. For someone who doesn't have the time or interest to sort of dedicate to understanding businesses and industries and competitive threats and valuations and all those components of, of investing, buying you know, corporate Australia or corporate America or global corporates through a, a very cheap index fund and owning that for, for a very long period of time is going to deliver excellent financial outcomes and is absolutely appropriate for certain investors. I, I would just, you know, in our world, I think by virtue of that inch wide, mile deep um, research process that we, we go through, the fact that we have dozens and dozens of incredibly talented analysts and other members of our investment team working on um, some of the highest quality businesses on the planet, we just feel that we can, in a very concentrated portfolio, deliver the absolute returns. Again, we're not trying to beat markets. We're trying to deliver absolute returns to our clients over time. And so, you, you know, you, you mentioned Warren Buffett, you know, Charlie Munger, his business partner, he sort of said, I think something along the lines of the whole point of investing is to know enough so that you don't have to diversify. And I think that's, you know, we're not perfect at Magellan, but that's the attitude and approach that we've got is to try and through that inch wide mile deep pre, uh, process, know these businesses well enough that we can gain conviction in their valuation, in their fundamental prospects, in their competitive position, in the, the various threats and risks that they will expose to so that we can take meaningful positions in these wonderful businesses and go on that absolute return compounding journey with them, with them over time. But it, it is naturally also the case that through poor skill and through bad luck as well, um, you will get things wrong. And of course, that matters more in a concentrated portfolio because the position sizes are larger. If you take a hit on one of those larger positions, it, it hurts your performance. And that's why you come back to that very first comment I made around the, the process and the philosophy, risk adjusted absolute returns. You know, so thinking about risks first and all the different risks that a company and a portfolio is exposed to consumes a lot of our time, a lot of our energy at Magellan thinking through those things. So when you, after you've done what you've done, once you've walked into the office, Chris, let's get, let's get right into the nitty gritty of what you look at when you are looking at a business. So let's, you know, whether it's Amazon or whether it's Tencent, whether it's Apple or whoever it is, there are a number of different metrics that you hear investors talking about, like its price to earnings, its price to its book value, the price relative to its sales, etc. What do you look at when you look at a company, you pick up its financials, you pick up Zoom's financials, right? Because they've just done insanely well over the last quarter, although some may still argue that it's still significantly overvalued. 
what's Chris looking at? What are Magellan looking at when you start opening up those books? And how do you start assessing whether or not that company is a company that you will include in your portfolio? Because I would imagine that the threshold and the bar for inclusion needs to be pretty damn high because something if something goes in, presumably something's got to go out or the exposure needs to be reduced because it is it is so high conviction and concentrated. Yeah, that's typically the way it works is often you're trading something for something. So there's an opportunity cost of trimming or exiting the position that you know well, that you understand, hopefully you've had a good good outcome from and replacing that with something. Um, so yeah, that, that, that natural tension and that the opportunity cost, that hurdle is very appropriate. I think more towards the heart of your question though is, you know, what are we looking at? What are we spending our time on? I'd actually suggest to you that the last thing we look at is sort of the numbers, particularly the share price. You know, some of the other numbers are, are very important, thinking through returns on capital and free cash flow generation, all those sort of things. But really where we start is a sort of qualitative understanding of the business and its industry. You know, what, what is the source of its competitive advantage and why should we expect that business to sustain that competitive advantage over time? Now, the numbers will tell you if that competitive advantage exists. Often you can see that through a business's high return on capital um, and to the extent that it's sustained historically, that's good evidence that the business has a moat, but that doesn't tell you what the moat is. You've actually got to do a sort of qualitative review of the business to understand whether those excess returns arise from a, you know, a very strong uh, brand, for example, um, like some of our luxury companies have have these century or multi-century brands in their portfolios. Maybe it arrives from some sort of network effect like a Visa or a Facebook, where again, you just every time a new user joins one of Facebook's social, social markets or any time a consumer or a merchant joins into Visa's network, the overall network strengthens. And so that can be a very important source of competitive advantage. Um, you can have switching costs. You can have all these different sort of forms of mode. You can't get there through the numbers. Uh, they might hint that a mode exists, but you actually have to do a qualitative deep dive to understand um, why that mode exists and therefore why it may um, continue to exist over time. So that, that is a very important, the most important uh, lens through which we think about quality is the source and the duration of a business's sustainable competitive advantage, or what we call an economic mode. Some of the other components to how we define quality, a second thing would be business risk. Thinking through anything, you know, again, risks, um, external shocks, bad luck that could impact our sort of ability to predict a company's earnings and free cash flows over time. Because there are some businesses like a regulated utility, or a food and beverage company, staples manufacturers, where the range of outcomes is quite narrow. But you compare that to different businesses that are operating in many, many different markets, new markets, uh, nascent markets, well-developed markets. Um, they just have a lot going on in their business. The, the big addressable market, like the, the range of outcomes for some of those businesses is very, very wide. Um, and so we want to sort of think through our ability to really understand the free cash flow and the earnings profile of that business over time. A third and very important part of quality for us is thinking about the agency risks, which is how the board and how management have treated shareholders and shareholders' capital over time. Have they been good stewards of our clients' capital? 
over time. Again, comes back to sort of that, that moat point. Are they reinvesting in areas in their business that will widen and deepen the moat over time? Or are they sort of just empire building? Are they doing silly acquisitions, value destructive deals, all those sort of things for within agency risk? Then the fourth and final area, which I don't think most investors pay enough attention to, uh, honestly, is something we call reinvestment potential, where we want to find and own businesses that have the ability to retain capital. So they generate their profits and they retain that, those profits, instead of paying them out in dividends or in buybacks, they retain those profits and they can reinvest them within their business at very high rates of return. And you take a, you know, McDonald's is a business that's been doing this for decades. Starbucks, another business in our portfolio, it retains most of the earnings that come out of its cafes around the world and uses those earnings to go and build and buy more cafes. And it's just this compounding machine at very, very high rates of return that frankly, we as portfolio managers, you know, we can't earn the same sort of returns as that. Starbucks, every time it opens a new store around the world, new stores in the US generate about a 60% return on capital. New stores in China generate about an 80% return on capital. So it's absolutely appropriate that that business is retaining that capital and reinvesting it and opening new cafes because I cannot, sadly, I don't think I'm going to be able to generate my clients 60% or 80% returns over sustained periods, but some of our businesses can. And that's why we think it's such an important part of quality. And so the qualitative review, the qualitative understanding is the most important. You do that, the numbers can help you. And then finally, the last thing we want to think about is what the business is worth. And then we want to compare that to where the share price is to understand whether it's good value, fair value, or overvalued at any point in time. You've given some really insightful examples around how you do that. And you, McDonald's case in point, Starbucks case in point. And I'm sure you, when you go to the office and have a look at what's going on with companies globally, um, Tesla's only just begun to make a profit, although that is questionable with uh, particular accounting methodologies. So, you know, we could agree or disagree on, on that one. Uh, there are a number of companies that are absolutely shooting the lights out, not making a dollar, whereas the way you're thinking about investing and, and return on investment, return on capital is, is very different. And I, and I guess that, that starts to talk to investing versus speculating. And clearly that's not the game that you're playing. We, we're talking about food in this instance and, and China and, and whatnot. Can you talk to us about the markets that you're most confident will grow in size and in opportunity in light of what we've just gone through? Yeah, well, so if we're going to talk markets in terms of geographies, then I think China and particularly the consumption opportunity and really the consumption opportunity towards the, the sort of top end of the socioeconomic pyramid in China is a really interesting and attractive and multi-year, if not multi-decade uh, source of growth. And deliberately we've exposed you know, our clients to a lot of businesses, very high quality businesses that should benefit from that. So that's one sort of market. Um, if you're thinking about industry markets or is industry segments where we also have a, a reasonably high degree of conviction will be much larger, cloud computing would be one. We're still in the very early innings of having all this compute workload shift from on-premise to the cloud. That won't happen quickly. That's one of those very slow, gradual burns, but the, the numbers there are quite staggering, the size of that addressable market. And 
I think probably more important, we would say, Rob, is not just the size of the addressable market, but the conviction you can have that certain and hopefully very few companies will capture that addressable market. And that's why we find something like cloud computing so interesting is because you've effectively got two ecosystems. You've got the ecosystem outside China, and that's effectively a three-horse race between Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, or Alphabet. And so one of those three players, in fact, all three of those players will likely do very well capturing the cloud computing addressable market outside of China. Within China is the other ecosystem. And there, the two top players are Alibaba and Tencent. And we have shareholdings in both of those companies, not just because of their cloud computing businesses, but that's a very important part of the investment case for both of those companies. There are other growth industries, a lot, you know, any sort of industry where there is a shift from an on-premise or offline consumption modality towards a sort of digital or online transaction is an area of growth. So legacy payments, cash and check-based payments transitioning to online and digital payments by credit cards and debit cards and the digital wallets and things like that. Digital media transitioning to online media. So media migrating from the press and from TV towards the social networks like Facebook, towards search engines like Google, towards YouTube. You know, that is another area of, of migration. Again, so what won't happen quickly, but is a very enduring, supportive tailwind behind the, the, the prospects for a lot of the businesses that we, that we own at the moment. You're seeing the same thing happen in commerce. You know, you've got offline commerce gradually, though COVID certainly provided a short-term boost to this, offline commerce transitioning to online commerce. And of course, that's benefited Amazon, eBay historically, other businesses here in Australia as well that really play well in that online uh, commerce space. So, you know, there's a lot of, even in this low growth world, there's a lot of markets, both geographies uh, and industries where there's uh, an enormous addressable market. And but like I said, Rob, the most important thing for our point of view is having conviction that you know who are the most likely winners in those large addressable markets, not just today, but more importantly, five years from now and 10 years from now. It's really interesting the way you think about sort of the macro landscape and then how you get exposure to that. You know, I look at your portfolio and 70% of it is sitting in some sort of tech e-commerce type of company and you talk about the concept of on-site to off-site cloud uh, etc we spoke yesterday and we were having a conversation about this concept of post-covid and the return to the office to do or not to do netflix's ceo was interviewed recently on the wall street journal and, and when he was asked when he thinks that netflix will return to the office his response was 12 hours after there's a, a vaccine. And the way, I, the way I think about it is if we're looking at one of the most innovative companies in the world, one of the largest companies, growing companies in the world in Netflix, if the way they think about cultural capital ideas and so forth and that working from home is a net negative is what Reed Hastings says, how do you think about that as it relates to the investments you make? Because the likes of 
Microsoft, as an example, are providing solutions for people like you and I, although we're not using Teams, we're using Zoom today. Although they're providing solutions for a lot of these companies, uh, companies around, and consumers around the world, what are you seeing that the companies are looking at doing themselves? Are they the ones that are going to be buyers of their own solutions? Or I gave the Netflix example, which is quite the contrary. And everybody's talking about this concept of the office is dead. No one's going to go into major cities anymore. How do you think about that? And what's your point of view when it, when it comes to thinking about that as it relates to investing? Yeah, well, maybe we'll contrast it between how we're thinking about our investing companies and then, you know, maybe if, if this is kind of the angle you're touching on as well, how we're thinking about Magellan and the sort of cultural capital aspect of things in this sort of work from home environment we have here in Australia at the moment. But I think, you know, Reed Hastings makes, makes no one's going to argue. I mean, the, the guy's got a brilliant track record. I, I did find it funny that his follow-up comment was that he's also worked from home uh, for 20 years, just at nights and weekends. So he's very used to the work from home uh, aspect of things as well, which was, which was a nice comment. But I think, you know, we just, we're in this period around the world because of COVID where each company and each industry has a chance to sort of reset and rethink about what the most appropriate approach is going forward. And for Netflix, and given the very important role of interpersonal contact and discussion and debate and idea generation, I think it absolutely makes sense for a business like Netflix to try and get their team back together uh, within the four walls of a building as soon as it's safe and practical to do so. But equally, there might be other industries where, you know, the sort of commute into an office, sitting around in an office all day, commuting home, isn't really optimal, isn't, isn't the ideal sort of routine or workflow. So I just think every business, every industry will be out, most will be able to sort of use this as an opportunity to, to sort of take a blank page approach and think about what's most appropriate. Some will go back to, you know, the five or six days in the office like Netflix and others I'm sure will try and find something a little different. And I think, you know, what we probably should expect is we'll, we'll go through a period of experimentation. You know, we'll iterate our way, each company, each business will sort of iterate its way towards what works for them, their culture, their team, their clients, their business overall. So I think we're going to see all sorts of things across the different spectrum. You know, as it relates to some of the portfolio companies, frankly, they have been very substantial beneficiaries of this COVID period. I mean, Microsoft and the adoption of its cloud services, Facebook and the engagement with its social networks, Tencent uh, and the engagement and adoption of its online games, uh, digital payments, cloud computing business, um, Alibaba and the acceleration in its e-commerce business. Some of those things have really accelerated during this period. It is likely the case in the short term, you know, let's call it over the coming quarters or coming years, to the extent to which we have a vaccine or therapeutics or any, anything that allows us to revert back towards our pre-COVID routines might see some moderation in the demand for some of those services. If people are spending less time at home, they're going to be gaming less online. They're sort of back to their old prior routines. But the march that we saw, that the tailwinds that were in place pre-COVID were towards some of these digital services, digital channels, um, and areas of digital engagement. You know, Tencent's online gaming business was growing very, very healthily before COVID. Alibaba's e-commerce business has been growing for decades, frankly. 
the growth in visa uh, and digital payments has been growing um, very healthy before COVID. So there could be some sort of short-term cyclical decline in engagement just as people adopt those old prior routines. But I think that will recover pretty quickly and we'll go back towards those structural growth uh, tailwinds that existed post-COVID, pre-COVID rather, in the, in the years ahead. And frankly, that's, as I mentioned earlier, Rob, that's what we're thinking about. You know, what kind of happens over the coming quarters, frankly, for most of our businesses is really neither here nor there. So long as we have real conviction that the sort of five-year destination uh, in terms of the industry and a business's competitive position within that industry remains robust. And so long as uh, the, the share price for that business isn't, uh, isn't overvalued, we'll likely stay the course and we don't get too concerned around sort of short-term quarterly uh, noise and events. You're a global investor and I think this is true for most residents of, most global residents, we tend to have a home bias. So a lot of Aussie investors that we speak to when we first meet them, generally they've got a portfolio that is primarily made up of Australian shares especially if they are of the 50, 55 plus retiree demographic, right? Imputation and franking become really valuable for, for these investors. What is it that a lot of these investors are missing out on when we look at the global stock market and Australia makes up 2% or thereabouts maybe a little bit less now as, as the US continues to grow significantly. When we look at the global investment landscape, you're, you're talking about companies like McDonald's that are publicly traded. You're talking about Starbucks. You're talking about Tencent. And I'd, I'd love to, for you to talk a little bit about, about more about that company in a moment. But what is it that investors are missing out on? Australian investors with the significant home bias that they have, what are they missing out on, Chris? Yeah, I think the landscape word that you mentioned, Rob, is, is the right one. I think it's just a, it's a deeper and it's a richer and a broader landscape as soon as you leave the, the ASX, effectively, for all sorts of reasons. Australia is a, a wonderful country, you know, it's the best country, I'd argue. But it's a pretty narrow economy and it's an even narrower share market. So people that, that you're absolutely right, all the data suggests, Rob, that sort of not just Australian investors, but Australian uh, investors in any domestic market have that domestic market bias. Just for Australian investors with that domestic market bias, though, it means you're really overweighting just a couple of sectors and probably just a couple of businesses, to be honest. And as soon as you sort of cast the net a little wider than just the Australian opportunity set, you know, you're finding more geographies, obviously, and some of those geographies should have higher sort of nominal growth rates than Australia going forward but also industries, some of the industries that I mentioned earlier, digital payments, e-commerce, online gaming, you know, real areas of growth going forward where we just don't have, we might have a, a company or two that kind of plays in that space or is exposed to that thematic, but it's not a particularly deep opportunity set here in Australia. So as soon as you cast uh, the net offshore, you, you just, the opportunity set is, like you said, I mean, we're sort of 2% of the global population, the global economy here in Australia. So of course, as soon as you look outside Australia, the benefits of diversification that we mentioned earlier, 
but also the option to find these wonderful businesses, wonderful global businesses that just benefit from very dominant competitive positions, but exposed to all these growth tailwinds, that opportunity expands as well. But again, you know, I'd sort of tie that back to some of the other comments we, we, we mentioned earlier. People have to behave in accordance with what is appropriate for them. Casting the net offshore in and of itself isn't necessarily the right outcome for people who might be tempted to do the wrong thing. Um, from an investment point of view. So you've always got to have that sort of self-awareness in, in the back of your mind as well. It's really interesting when, when you talk about it because everything that, everything that comes beyond or that follows beyond the foundations, unless you have those foundations really clear in your mind and really deep-rooted, making decisions subsequently, if you've got no, no philosophy or rules that you abide by, you can get really... It, it's like sort of getting caught in a tide out, out in the water, right? Like it can just take you anywhere. If you're not swimming between the flags, so to speak, yeah. it can be a really dangerous, dangerous place to be. I want to, it's interesting, a couple of, something you said, I, I, I recently remember, I think it's Apple's wearables. So the Apple like watch, for example, their wearables revenue most recently just exceeded that of, Swatch's total revenue. So Swatch having number of luxury brands, um, more leisurely brands. And I, I also noticed you mentioned that you've got some luxury names, maybe not in the High Conviction Trust, but also in maybe in, in some of your, your, your global strategies. Are investors not so attached to those luxury names that have been around? I know I think you guys might, might own Estee Lauder, Louis Vuitton, I think. Like what, what's going on in, in that landscape? Like what's changing when a company like Apple comes along? You know, it's not a big fat automatic watch on, on your wrist anymore. It, it's very different. And consumers are now gravitating towards that. How, how does that play out when it comes to your portfolio? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different angles uh, in there, Rob. I think, you know, Apple, when we spoke earlier about all the different sorts of moats, you can have switch <clears throat> work effects, brand Apple has a number of those, which is why, frankly, it's one of the most valuable companies on the planet. Is that you know it's the sort of Charlie Munger's Lulapalooza, where it's not just one single aspect to its moat; it has yeah. aspects to its moat, um, which has been why it's so so successful. But brand has been a very important part of it. You know, people mm. love Apple brands, uh, Apple products. You know, people yeah. whenever there's a launch, they still queue out the door, around the corner, down mm. the street to get their hands on that new product. You don't see that in very many businesses, that sort of demand and that loyalty for their product. But it has meant in the watch space and in other areas where Apple competes, uh, it's taken some market share away from mm -hmm. other players like Swatch. And frankly, we see it even within some of the other more traditional luxury players. You know, the, 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 the watch space has been quite a challenging space for quite some time. But adding to that challenge has been the fact that you have these digital devices and watches coming in now and competing with the, you know, the classic timepieces that, that got sold at very high price points. Mm. There are some brands, you know, the Patek, Patek Philippe brand, you know, I imagine that has stood the test of time. I'm sure in some form that business will still be with us 10, 20, 50 years from now, maybe even centuries from now. Um, that is the nature of some of these, not many of them, but few of these exclusive, mm. well-managed mm. luxury they stand the test of time but it's just the nature of capitalism where you have these disruptive threats you have technology 
developments um, and you have very capable competitors come in and try and take away and capture some of those economics just as Apple has done in its watches business and its broader devices business, wearables business. We talked briefly about Tencent who owns WeChat. WeChat accumulated 100 million users in 433 days. It took Facebook to get to that same point, five and a half years, and it took Twitter four years to do that. And I think by last year, it was 300 million users. This company is mind-boggling, and I think a lot of Australian investors that, that do have this home bias unfortunately don't see some of these opportunities that are that do present themselves globally. Alibaba is another one. I mean, Alibaba has been public for a number of years now. Can you, can you give us some insight into a company like Tencent and what, what it is they're doing and how, how beneficial that, that is for both the economy and also for investors? Yeah, it is, it, it is a very, very interesting and very high quality business. So I think the easiest way of trying to describe it to an Australian audience is trying to describe WeChat, uh, describe Tencent's various businesses using Western equivalents. Um, and so the right place to start, as you mentioned, Rob, is WeChat, um, which is not perfectly identical to, but is quite similar to a sort of Facebook in the sense that the heart of it's sort of a social messaging, a social network and messaging platform. And that WeChat app and ecosystem in China has 1.2 billion active users. So think about that. In a country with about 1.4 billion people, nearly everyone, man, woman, child, is using that service and they're using it actively. Means they're sort of on a daily, weekly basis engaged in that. And the brilliance of Tencent over time is that they've channeled the audience that comes through that WeChat app and the messaging services. And because it's messaging and social networks, it's a very frequent engagement many times a day. They channel that audience and they channel that engagement into all sorts of other areas and other services. So they have a very large digital payments business which you, you, you can kind of think about like a, a bit of a Visa and a bit of a PayPal, a bit of an Afterpay, those sort of businesses within Tencent's digital payments and, and, and fintech business. Incidentally, Ant Financial, which is a different business, Ant Financial is actually the fintech and payments associate for Alibaba, is rumoured to be sort of IPOing sometime in the coming months with a valuation sort of could be anywhere between 200 and 300 billion US dollars. The reason I mentioned that is because Ant Financial and Tencent's digital payments business are effectively kind of the Visa and MasterCard of digital payments in China. They're the duopoly. And one business is kind of worth a couple of hundred billion US dollars. Um, Tencent's business will also be worth many, many potentially hundreds of billions of dollars. You know, it might not be as a, uh, as a valuable as Ant Group, but it's a very valuable and large business in its own right. Through WeChat, as well as digital payments, they, off, they offer online gaming. Tencent owns, has the largest online gaming business on the planet, not just, not just within China, but globally, it has the largest online gaming business. Um, and that's another area where we're seeing gaming shift from sort of legacy traditional consoles uh, and methods of playing towards phones um, and other online channels. Um, and so that business is incredibly well positioned and growing very quickly. It has a large digital media and entertainment business also within, within Tencent. So think about 
again, not a perfect analogy, but uh, a Spotify or a Netflix who can't operate in China, guess what? Tencent owns sort of the local equivalent to some of those businesses. So it is a very, very broad ecosystem of services that really has WeChat and the audience and the engagement and the usage of WeChat users sitting at the heart of it. It has effectively become the portal through which Chinese citizens are engaging in all sorts of digital services. And it's become known now as a super app, almost an operating system in its own right. So you think about here in Australia, when we open our iPhone, if we want to access Uber, we go to the Uber app. If we want to access Netflix, we go to the Netflix app. Well, the way to think about this in China is to access those sort of services, whether it's ride hailing or streaming video, you actually access them through the WeChat app. So you go to WeChat, that becomes the operating system through which you access all of these, uh, all these digital services. So it's, it's an incredibly impressive business. And it's just fascinating, you know, for a long time, you know, personally, I, I think what Mark Zuckerberg has built at Facebook is incredible um, in terms of the business that he's created there. But when you contrast that to what um, Pony Ma and the other founders of Tencent have built over a fairly similar time period, it's breathtaking how much, how much, how broader and how successful that Tencent business is Facebook's an incredible business, but Tencent might even be might even be more impressive in what they've been able to build there. Chris, the the global investing landscape is very complex. You've got a entire team. Their full time job is to analyze companies, analyze markets, identify the opportunities, and for. For individual investors trying to do what you do, I, I think that would be an incredibly difficult task. I want to thank you today for giving us, I think, real insight into how you and the team at Magellan have been able to think about the world as it is today, but also what that may mean for tomorrow, grounded with a very thoughtful investment philosophy that helps you swim between the flags, so to speak. So Chris, on that note, thank you so much for giving up your Friday morning to, to chat with me and, and, and our listeners as well. On that note, have, a, have an awesome weekend and we'll chat again soon.